What's up? What's up, Transit Church? Good to see y'all. Uh, the smile on my face um, is real. It's it's like it's it's good to see some of your faces. If if I'm like a stranger standing in front of you and you've recently joined us uh, over the summer since I've been gone. Uh, let me say welcome to you. Uh, glad that you not only came, but you stayed and, and that you have uh, perhaps found a good welcome at the transit. We're glad that you're here, and I look forward to getting to meet you and getting to know you a little bit. Uh, probably the question of the day is how was sabbatical? Uh, that's really what all of y'all have walked up and asked me as, I've, uh, as you've seen me and my family back. And we, and we came with, like, all of us, like, all the kids jumped in the car, and we were all... I don't know if they were excited or not when I woke them up, but uh, they all came, and uh, it, I mean, it really is good to be back. It's good to be back among you. It's good to be worshiping with you. It's good to see your faces, and the smile on my face is genuine. We actually missed y'all. Uh, those of you that I didn't see as I was out and about, and I didn't see too many of you uh, as making my, my multiple trips a day to Wegmans uh, during my sabbatical. Uh, well, let me tell you a little bit about sabbatical. Um, you know, I, I went on sabbatical. Uh, first, let me actually thank some people here. Because, uh, you know, this, uh, a, a church even of this size is a, a, a huge undertaking to keep it going, um, you know, during, during the summer and all that. So first, let me thank uh, our elders for making room for me to, to be vulnerable and tell them I was tired, kind of burnt out, and that. I'm an energizer bunny, but really my body was saying, and my mind, my soul was saying, all right, take a break, Jeff, and, uh, and for them to hear me and actually give me some time off. And so five weeks was not, you know, in hindsight, I needed more, but five weeks was a, a, a great amount of time for us to take during the summer when, of course, our church is so transient, like, like all other churches here in the transients of D.C. So thanks to our elders, thanks to our department leaders, they are our, our deacons who uh, who do the, the hard labor of uh, managing the volunteers and making sure that, uh, that, that church happens on Sunday. And, and more than that, making sure things happen during the week, scheduling and, and buying things and all that, that that allows us to be here on Sunday and, and gather as a church. Thanks to those of you who have volunteered and, you know, amidst the busyness of, of your summer schedules and travels and all that. And uh, a last thank you would go to my buddy, Pastor Nick Mudd, for... Uh, for leading the charge, not just filling the pulpit, but you know all that comes with uh, with the young church, and uh, that's one of the first things Nick said to me. He's like, "I didn't realize there was so much that, that goes into just just uh, just doing church." All right, so uh, that was the lesson I wanted him to get. I just didn't tell him. I didn't tell him ahead of time. And so uh, here's here's how my sabbatical went. I went in with some lofty goals. I mean, I had some things written down that I wanted to do. Um, I wanted to spend some quality time with my family. I wanted to, I wanted to read a ton of books. I wanted to exercise a little bit. Uh, I wanted to do some visioneering on the church. Um, and and I, I don't know, I just you know, wanted to get some things done. Uh, it took me probably two weeks to realize that, uh-oh, Jeff, I, I think you're doing too much on your sabbatical because Really, you go on sabbatical actually to rest. I mean, that's what the word means, right? It means to cease. It means to stop doing what you're doing for a while. The theology behind Sabbath is God created the world in six days, and then he rested. Not because God was tired. He's setting a precedence for us as part of his creation. Uh, that comes from Genesis 
too. You've heard that before. In fact, if you fast forward to Exodus chapter 20, God brings Israel out of, the, out of slavery. He, he has them on Mount Sinai, and he gives them the commandments. And of the commands, he tells them to remember the Sabbath. Okay, And of course, God is not, he, he's reminding us that he's not just the creator, but he's the sustainer of the world. And God doesn't need us in our busyness and in our labor to, to keep the world, world up. Why? Because he's already doing that. We don't need to do God's part. And so um, it took me a few weeks to actually get into the, a, a rhythm of rest. Actually, I'm not even sure if I really completely got into it uh, because I'm a little hard-headed. But it, it was a, a good five weeks. Um, my wife, uh, you know, God sends, uh, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. So my good thing helped me along the way. A- embarrassingly, I did not start out trying, I wasn't even trying to rest. I was just getting away. So day one, um, I tackled our garage. We had just moved over into Island Creek into a, into a townhouse. And of course, when you move into a house, you got a garage, everything you don't want in the house, what do you do? You stick it in the garage. And so... Uh, I, I labored in my garage for a whole day, just sort of making it usable, making some paths so I could do some exercise in there, and we could actually live uh, by going through our garage to get to the rest of the house. So that was day one. Day two, I tackled my yard, and uh, I live in a townhouse, so all right, I, I ain't got a lot of yard. I got about two feet of grass. The rest of the house is manicured mulch. I've got a, 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 a a, a wood walkway. I've got some stone and some rocks and everything, but I got a hot tub. My, the, the owners of our house, the previous owners, left a hot tub in the back. And so uh, I spent a lot of time figuring out how to sit in that hot tub and, <laughs> and do what people who, I mean, just listen to the Lecrae's knew, let the trap say amen, right? <laughs> so I did a little bit of that. It took me a, a couple of iterations to actually get used to doing that. Just like, you know what? I think I'm going to go sit in the hot tub right now. Um, but, I mean, for, I mean, honestly, after two days, I had exhausted all of the physical labor that I could do, and, and I was out on my own then, and so I started reading books. And, of course, I had a, a lofty goal of reading a lot of books. And I had, I had a stack of books like this, and they were all church pastor-type books that I was just going to crank through. I read the whole New Testament and two pastor-like books in the first week of my sabbatical. And then on about day five or six, my wife looks at me. She's like, what are you reading? What are you doing? And then my wife became the helper that I needed her to be. She actually said, you know, you put those books down. You're supposed to actually, I mean, it's, it's okay to have a couple spiritual goals, but you're supposed to be resting. So she took over my reading regimen. For all you Republicans out there, she bought me Bill Clinton's new uh, bestseller, um, The President is Missing. I would tell you it's a page turner. I, I mean... I couldn't stop turning the pages. Of course, it did sound like Bill Clinton reading to me. Um, but it was a good book. If you want to borrow it, I'll let you. Um, but it is a book uh, that, would, that kept me interested. Um, one of the other things my wife did to me was she shared with me the words of a friend of hers who was also on sabbatical. This a pastor's wife by the name of Trisha Davis. Her and her husband um, were a part of a mega church as campus pastors. Recently, they went out and, and planted a church and her words and the emotion that she felt as she is feeling burnt out so articulately um, convey just like emotions I don't even know if I have. And so I'm going to read a part of, 
of what Trisha said. So this is after the first year of them planning a church. She said she looked over across the table at her husband and she just started like, like all just like emotions start spilling out of her. She says, it's only been a year, a year of change, celebration, heartbreak. I cried heart tears and blurted out, I haven't had a Sunday off and I w- I'm so tired, bone tired. My heart feels off and I don't even know what to do to make it not feel off. And those are, those are heartfelt words there. And then she goes out and, and talks about how her husband, who knows her well, just decides that, you know, it's time for her to take a sabbatical. And she talks about what she did. And, and basically, she just uh, let herself be free to, to do some things that she enjoyed. She woke up late. She says, I read a lot. I cried a lot. I slept a lot. I ate a lot of ice cream. I ran beside my kids as they're on their bikes. I hung out with my friends. I read a little bit of the Bible, and I cried again a lot. And then this is the part that I think just touched me the most. She said, I learned that rest is the prelude to true Sabbath. Rest is where the noise of busy is no more and the cries of wounds get loud. Rest feels scary, defeating and frustrating, but rest always leads to Sabbath. Sabbath isn't just muting schedules, circumstances, and wounds. Sabbath is resting in the knowledge of Jesus, and she concludes with this, knowing that in him, tired bones find true rest, off hearts find peace, pain finds purpose, identity is clear, value is found, love is lavished, Sabbath becomes the foundation of living your best life. I couldn't have written those words because I'm not in touch with the emotions that she seems to be able to not only feel but, but elaborate on, but this is why I need it. The, the few weeks that y'all gave me off. So thanks, Transit Church, for the time that, that you gave us off. My wife surprised me again a couple of weeks ago. She asked me, so, I mean, did you learn anything on your Sabbath? And honestly, I was not prepared for her to ask me that question because in my heart, because I'm a busybody, uh, I'm thinking, well, I mean, I don't think I've learned anything because uh, I've just been sitting here doing nothing. I've been resting all these many weeks. But, you know, the, the thought prodded me, the, the question that she asked, and I did come up with a few things that, uh, that I have learned uh, since she asked me the question. Here's the first. I, I actually was fatigued. I, more than fatigued, I was probably frustrated in a lot of areas of my own life and, and professional life, and I needed to, to, to stew in those. I was tired, uh, a tiredness not in body. I mean, I, for some reason, the Lord has asked, really give me a capacity like an energizer bunny. I can go and go and go and go. But I had a tiredness in me that, uh, you know, a weekend off or vacation in the summer with my family wasn't taking away. It was a tiredness of, of soul, a tiredness of spirit that, that needed a spiritual remedy. I think I was feeling that. The second thing, I realized I'm an addict. No, don't, don't grimace at me. Your pastor's not on drugs. I'm not, skip, I'm not slipping into, into D.C. with a side hustle of, of selling and smoking weed. <laughs> Um, I, I'm an addict of busy, an, an addict of, of busy. Uh, one of the blessings of my sabbatical was I was invited to go to Nashville during the last week of my sabbatical, and I was with a cohort of, of men. Some of them were my friends, but uh, pastors, all pastors. And uh, we were there under the guise of going through counseling training to help people like, to, to get tools to help people like me planting churches uh, undergo kind of spiritual awareness training, but in the midst of going through the training, I myself was getting counsel. And on the very first day of this counseling retreat, 
the mentor there uh, had us take a three-by-five card, not your Bible, not your phone, not anything extraneous to you, and he said, for 15 minutes, write down Psalm 4610, be still and know that I am God, and, and, and meditate on it, write down what you think it means to you. And so uh, I'm at this uh, mega mansion, 10,000 square foot, 10 room horse ranch uh, in Franklin, Tennessee, probably on 20 acres, just a beautiful setting. I go outside, I'm looking at all of nature, nothing's coming to me. I was like, what does this mean? And then I write down, um, I guess it means that in my restlessness, I would give that to the Lord in faith, knowing that he would nourish me, almost like we were singing, as the deer this morning, and then five minutes later, I, I, I confess this to the Lord just on this three by five card. Lord, I don't even think I know how to be still. I say, I've spent a lot of years, perhaps even all my life, um, living life, being successful, doing things in my own strength and in my own wisdom. And I'm, I'm, hopefully, I'm not making you uncomfortable. I'm coming back from sabbatical, all vulnerable, right? <clears throat> That's what, that's what happens when you go on sabbatical. Um, but, but here's the thing in that. It's not good for any Christian not to actually to be able to, to be still and know that, that God is God. It's definitely not good for a pastor to do that because, you know, there's no precedence in the Bible where a guy was running as fast as he could and God came down and said, Jeff, I love you and here's the vision for you and for your church and this is all the things you're supposed to be doing. It really doesn't happen. Most people, when they hear from God, when they're getting visions from God and where God is um, just unveiling the, the, the depths of their heart, they're, they're being still. They're, they're being quiet. They're hearing God in the whisper and, you know, five weeks... Didn't solve that for me, so I got a ways to go on that. And here's the third thing I learned. I learned that the root of my restlessness is really just a lot of pride and shame. And that, that's a lot to lay on you. That's another sermon for another day. We're going to actually get into this in the fall when we go through a sermon series uh, called Redemption, looking at how God saved Israel from, the, uh, from slavery. Um, but, but pride and shame. And unfortunately, I'm not alone in this. Because every one of you in here struggles in this way as well. I, 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 would, I would say this boldly. The root of all of your striving, all of your sin, are these two evils of pride and shame. And so, uh, again, my wife helped me. She bought me a book and, and then another book that, that's sort of helping me in, in this area of, of what does it mean to recognize the shame that you've been living under and, and what you can do about it. Um, man, that's enough about sabbatical, right? We need to like lighten this up. Good grief. But roundabout way, that brings us to our text this morning. We have been in a, a study in the gospel of Mark, and I'm going to continue that today. And uh, we're going to cross over into chapter seven. Uh, if you haven't been with us, Mark is a gospel. Gospel means good news. It's a biography of the life of Jesus and what Mark is doing. He's written the, the shortest, most action-packed biography of Jesus, and Mark is taking us on this quick journey to see who Jesus is and what he has done. And last week, Nick uh, preached most of chapter 6, and in that, uh, we learned that God comes in the person of Jesus, and he saves us from the wilderness of our lives. He saves our, sinness, our sins, our, our sickness, and our diseases. 
And he not only uh, leads us through a wilderness, he loves us, and eventually uh, Mark is going to show us that he saves us by dying uh, a death that we deserve on the cross for our sins. So this week, Mark is actually introducing a new section to the, the gospel. And what Mark is going to do is he's going to unpack in, uh, through chapter 7 and chapter 8 uh, uh, really this message, that those who we think are actually a part of God's family aren't necessarily a part of God's family. We, we, we say that the Jews are God's chosen people. Jesus is going to show us that Jews are not the only people of God. God actually calls non-Jewish people. The Bible calls them Gentiles. And he's going to teach us this principle through uh, yet another conflict with uh, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And through that, we're going to learn what it means to be in a right relationship with God. Jesus is going to talk about what it means for us to be morally clean, not a cleanness that, that we get the outside of the cup uh, all nice and shiny, but what it means for, for God himself to come and to clean us from the inside out, which is really what makes us a part of God's family. You know, we would, we would be wrong to think that just because I'm a part of an, uh, a particular ethnic identity or that I know a lot about God, or that I come to church, or that I pay money to a church and for all that it's doing, that those are the reasons that I have a relationship with God. Jesus is going to clear that up really in a roundabout way as he's talking to these religious leaders. Our relationship with God, Jesus is going to say, is based upon something not external to us. It's based upon something completely internal to us. It's the condition of our heart. Now, if you're if you're not a Christian here today, that, that should probably rub up against you a little bit. Because here's the, here's the culture that we live in. We live in a culture that it's appropriate to say that, that everybody has good intentions. We live in a culture that the, the common thought is that um, everybody is kind of sort of morally good. That's not to say that there aren't really bad people in the world. Your occasional terrorists and those who actually have done something bad and deserve, deserve to be in prison. But most of us think that most people are at least leaning towards being good. But, but here's my pushback on that. Have you ever realized that even if you think that every one of us struggles again with, with, with those twin um, difficulties of guilt and, and of shame? It doesn't really matter what you think about the world. There's this conundrum in us that you can think that we're all morally good, but what do you do with all those feelings that you have inside of you of guilt and of shame? Where do those things come from? Noted author and pastor Tim Keller says this. He says this in his book, uh, The Reason for God. We live in a world where we don't believe in judgment or sin, and yet we still feel there is something wrong with us. Though we uh, we've abandoned the ancient categories of sin, judgment, and guilt. We still have a profound, inescapable sense that if we were examined, we would be rejected. I think what Dr. Keller is saying, that we all feel at some level we have this, this deep sense that we have to hide or at least control what people know about us. There's some things about all of us that we would rather they be left a secret, and only we or certain people that we trust know about them. There are certain parts of us, of our lives, that, 
that we don't think are acceptable. And because of that, we, we feel like we have to prove ourselves and to others that we're worthy. We feel like we have to prove to ourselves and to others that we are lovable, that we are valuable. I think every human being is trying to do this. That much of our lives are centered around um, outdoing the shame of our lives, and we do that through achievement and through having lots of friends, perhaps even fake friends, social media friends. We, we bolster up our relationships. We try to gain notoriety. We try to make sure that our lives look beautiful from the outside, and of, if you're like me, through busyness, right? We try to cover up what we're feeling on the inside. And this, this goes for if you are a Christian or if you're not, if you're religious or if you would consider yourself irreligious. What we're all looking for is a way to prove ourselves, prove to ourselves and those around us that we are worthy. We're trying to make ourselves worthy by who we are on the outside because we don't actually feel that way. We feel inconsequential. We feel insignificant. If I'm using the words that Jesus is using in our text, we feel dirty. We feel unclean. We feel like there's something wrong with us, even if we can't put a finger on it. And what Jesus is going to do in our text today, he's going to put a finger on that feeling that we have that we can't quite explain. He's going to take us to the heart of Christianity. Let me pray, and then we'll get going. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for just the opportunity for me to be back in the pulpit. I feel good to be here. And uh, what we want to hear from you, that's why we're here. We've gathered today because you've told us to, not to forsake the gathering of ourselves uh, together. And, uh, and Lord, I simply pray that, that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you and, and be acceptable to those who hear it. My Lord, my strength, and my Redeemer. And that we pray that in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to start in chapter 6, verse 53. And then cross over into chapter 7. Read these, verse out, these words out loud with me. They'll be on the screen. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages or cities or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made whole. All right, so this is a summary paragraph. And Mark is giving us a summary paragraph because he's transitioning. Jesus is transitioning. Jesus has been ministering out in the countryside, you know, out in the nowheres because he was trying to escape the crowds. And what happens? Everybody found him. And so Jesus is, you know, he's, he's not necessarily remedying that, but he's, his ministry has just taken a turn and he's going to go back to the cities. And the first city that he comes to happens to be Gennesaret. But, but here's what Mark is trying to describe for us. He's, he's describing pandemonium. I mean, like people are coming from the woodworks. Everywhere he shows up, there's a crowd. And these crowds, I mean, just the individuals themselves, they have needs. They've heard that Jesus can just speak a word or he can touch you or you can just reach out and almost touch him. And whatever ailment you have in your life, in your body, it's going to dry up. He's going to heal you. And they want that. And so what Mark is trying to get us to see is this picture of Jesus coming to the most public place in their community. In our, in our community here, it'd be like him coming to the backside of that Springfield Town Center on the, on the side where all the cars are, where it's hard to park during lunchtime or 
like at night where everybody's going to the restaurants and like Jesus just comes like in the middle of that and, and situates himself. Or, or worse, Jesus goes downtown in D.C. and he hangs out on a national mall and just like everybody that's, that's anybody is, is knowing that he's there and they're going to see him. And so it's this spectacle of Jesus has come Oh, what's going to happen if I can just get near him? Mark is warning us to get just a sliver of uh, a picture of what the life in the ministry of Jesus is like. And of course, Jesus' life is filled with all of these type encounters. And then he crosses over into chapter 7, and this activity of, of Jesus being surrounded by all kinds of people and, um, and healing people is going to get interrupted by religious leaders, the Pharisees, and the scribes, and a couple words about them before I get going. In, in the chapter seven, Mark has already talked to us about the Pharisees and the and the scribes. He talked to us lastly in chapter three, when he meets the the Pharisees. It's in chapter three. Jesus has come to a synagogue. He's healed a man, and the the Pharisees, who are strict rule followers, see that. And they say that, man, this guy's broken in law. He's like done something you're not supposed to do on the Sabbath. And what happens? Jesus does it anyway. And the Pharisees are indignant. And then in there, they decide, you know what? We need to take this guy out. We need to kill him or what he's doing is going to spread. In that same chapter, he runs up against the, the scribes. The scribes were on the down low following behind Jesus. They had found him. So they were like scoping, scoping out what he was doing. Jesus exercises a demon out of a man. They see it, and uh, like the Pharisees, they want to put a, uh, they want to squelch what he's doing. And so they say out loud, "Well, the only reason he has this power is because he's deriving his power to cast out demons from the prince of demons. He's got Beelzebub in him." And so these are the lovely kind of people that Jesus is going to encounter in chapter seven. Look at verse one. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him. With some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of the disciples are with, uh, are, ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. All right, so... I mean, if you're reading this, in a sense, I mean, this makes sense, right? I mean, even 2,000 years ago in antiquity, there would have been people who, like us today, cared about their cleanliness. In this case, these are religious people, religious leaders, and they are tending kind of sort of to uh, some rules that they thought God had passed down. I got I, to be honest with you. I can't read this text without, in a sense, thinking about going to a restaurant. You know, you go to the restaurant. You go to the bathroom, and as you're washing your hands, you see that sign on the, right by the sink that says, employees must wash their hands before they return back to work. And I, I'm always confused when I see that, because at first, I first thought, is this sign here for me? So that I have a little bit of comfort to know that the employees are washed, like the people handling my food, and God forbid, the people that are actually fixing my food are actually washing their hands, or, is it actually for the people who work there to remind them, oh, my gosh, that they got to wash their hands before they return to serving me and handling my food? I mean, whichever case is, I mean, it's just, that's just a bad thought to have, right? So, so here, here's the thing. 
We don't have to worry about these, that with these religious leaders because they're like, they're monk-like, not monk, the, the monastery monk. They're monk-like, Adrian Monk. Y'all watch Monk? That's one of the things I did on sabbatical. Uh, my daughter Zoe is addicted to Monk, and I mean, we watched like episode after episode of Adrian Monk, and it's, just, it's, it's a cool episode to watch. If you've never seen that, I offer that up to you. So they're washing their hands before they eat, but the overarching issue for them is not just washing their hands. It's defilement, which is like dirtiness on, you know, that's like dirty times 10. Uh, they're washing their hands, not so much to be physically clean, but the religious leaders think they can wash their hands to get spiritually, spiritually clean. Because this is here's what they believed. They believed if, they, if, if you were a Jew and you were out and about and you touched anything that God has said in his word in the Old Testament that was unclean, a dead animal, a dead person, any, you know, anything in God's law that he said, you know, this is unclean, it's blemished, there's a spot on it, and you touch that, you immediately have become what that thing was, unclean. Unclean hands, uh, they, they ate communally, and so they would take their hands, put it in their food, all of us together, and bring it into their, to their mouths. And so my hands are unclean because I've touched something unclean. I've taken my unclean hands, I've touched food, it has become unclean. I'm then going to put it in my mouth, and that food then becomes unclean, goes into my body, and I have not only become unclean, I've become defiled. And here's the, here's the thing with defilement. It meant that you were not just physically unclean, you were spiritually unclean, such that you couldn't worship, you couldn't go to the synagogue, you could have nothing to do with God and his holy presence. So that's the issue here. I mean, you see that train of thought? But what Mark is pointing out for us is that the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, they didn't get this from God's word. They're actually making this up. They're deriving this and adding more to it than what God has actually told them to do. And they call it the tradition of the elders. Look at verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And so this question in verse 5 is the question of a day, and it's going to trace out through the rest of this, this interaction between Jesus and these religious people. And so the tradition of the elders was an oral instruction where the religious leaders were just simply trying to apply the commands of the, of the Old Testament. The religious leaders took the commands. And, and, and so you got to see in, the, in, in this context, they are 700 to 1,000 years removed from having priests and Levitical scribes and, and prophets who would have been interpreting the law and thus saying the Lord to them. So they had been in exile and they're sort of making it up. Okay, they had create their, their temple was gone. Their daily sacrifices were gone. And they're taking what they know to be true about their relationship of who they are as the people of God. And they're trying to move that forward. And so they come up with their own laws. And what they end up doing is, is, is sort of going a little bit further than they're supposed to go. And they come up with these traditions of the elders. They come up with these elaborate traditions that they were using to, you know, in a sense, try to do what God had told them to do. And, and in effect, they come up with these robust rules that were hard for everybody to follow. It would be quick to judge what they're doing. 
But here's one of the things I think that we should take into consideration as we're, as we're just reading this. Because, I mean, most people don't have anything good to say about the religious leaders as they're presented to us in, in the Gospels, in the, in the New Testament at all. But if you think about it this way, we should exercise a little bit of caution in thinking about We shouldn't look down our noses at the Pharisees and scribes in this instance because what they're showing us is their zealousness. These people are zealous to obey the word of God. I mean, that's, that's what they're showing us. They're zealous to, to obey God's good commands and simply do all those things that God has told them to do. And if you, if you take a step back and think about that, that should be convicting. I mean, when was the last time that you were that zealous that you were just like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to put some measures in place in my life that, that helps me always want to do what God simply tells me to do. That's what's happening here. And so their obsession with washing their hands started as this obsession to obey God and remain distinct from the pagan nations around them. And that's exactly what God wanted them to do. But the reality is God had saved these people by grace, not, not because of how good they were. God didn't say, all right, Israel, you've bowed down to me. He didn't say, all right, uh, go worship your firstborn son. He didn't say, if you are perfect, I'll come and save you out of Egypt. That's not how God um, began, began a relationship with the nation of Israel. He heard their cry, and he sent his servant Moses, who was one of them, and through some great miracles, he delivered them from slavery. That was fully by grace. They didn't deserve it at all. And then what did he do? He got on the Mount Sinai, and he gave them the law. And what did the law, did, the law do for them? It showed them how they are supposed to be in a right relationship with God. So any relationship that you have, we come into our relationships extending grace. You get married, and you want to like, extend favor to your, to your spouse. But, but any relationship that you and I are in, there's some rules attached to it, right? There's some expectations that I have and that you have, and that we're going to agree to abide by those so that we can relate to each other. Parents, you'd be foolish to—well, to, uh, to, firstly— we have this unconditional love for our kids, right? God puts that in us. But you would be foolish to not have some rules that you teach to your kids about how you interact with each other and how, about how they go along with life because you're not setting them up for success for the life that they will live and how to be um, just good citizens of, of the world that they live in. And so God gives Israel, first he saves them by grace, but then he... Um, he gives them rules so they know how to live in the world that he's created, and they know how to live with him. And the heart of the law was that God would, that they would love God and love their neighbor. It's the Shema of Deuteronomy 6, 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And Jesus, Jesus says, hey, there's, there's a new command I'm going to give you. Love, your, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what God wanted them to do. He also wanted them to be holy because he was holy. In other words, I've saved you so that through you, I, God, will be made much of in the nations. And so what does it require for God's people to be made, to, for God through his people to be made much of in the nations that surround them? It, it's, it's this, that people would become, uh, that, that the people of God would not become ill reputes who do whatever the heck they want. God had some rules for them to follow. And so here's the thing. 
these religious leaders like the Pharisees and the scribes and even the Sadducees, uh, 2,000 years, 4,000 years after getting the law, they wanted to be the good people of God that were obeying God. They wanted this kind of lifestyle, and they had developed these traditions hoping that it would put a fence around them so that they would remain outwardly clean. They were trying to do what God had told them to do. They wanted it to, to, to be a fence so they wouldn't wander away from God. It's like you putting up a fence in your backyard so that your pet dog won't run away, right? Because some of our, I mean, our dogs will do that. It's like you, parents with young kids, putting a fence like one of those baby gates in your house so that your kid won't tumble down the steps before they're ready to do that. It's, it's you putting measures in place so that you protect them. And so that's what these laws were. In particular, were God's focus on cleanliness laws. This is the dreaded book of Leviticus that a lot of us just like flip past in our Bible. And so you read Leviticus, especially around Leviticus 11 and 12. It's as if God, in like verse after verse, God is saying, all right, if you touch or eat or do anything that's unclean, you got to go wash yourself before you come anywhere near me. And of course, that's exactly what God was saying. And Mark is highlighting that because he's writing to an audience that's, that's, that's Gentile, not necessarily Jewish. He's explaining the rituals of the Jews. But this is a big deal. And it's a big deal because God is focusing not on outward purity, but inward purity. All of the stuff that God is giving Israel to do, there's symbols the, the, this, the outward cleansing are symbols of what God requires on the inside as they were relating to God. Washing off the outward dirt was a visual aid in reminding Israel that as they come before God, their hearts need to be all the more cleansed, way more so than washing off the dirt out of your body. It's, it's really the, the, no different than you cleaning up for some important thing. Say a, a, a guy meets a girl and he asks her out for a date. What's he going to do? I, I hope he's going to go take a shower, perhaps clean up some of the hair off his face, put on some clean clothes, take the time to, do, to iron those clothes out a little bit, get some of those wrinkles out, and he takes her to a restaurant that's going to impress. And if he doesn't do that, guess what? He don't get no second date. I mean, that's, that's kind of how it is. Ain't that right, ladies? It's the same thing that you would do if, if you had a meeting with somebody important, or if you were interviewing for a job. You clean yourself up. You present your best Self, And that really is what we do when we are in the presence of beauty or when you are, uh, are meeting with an authority, someone that can determine your future, that can hire you and perhaps boost your income a little bit. You clean yourself up. You present your best self. And that's the purpose of the cleanliness laws, in a sense. We all need to clean up when we think about coming to the presence of this immensely holy, worthy, I mean, otherworldly, righteous God. And so... I mean, it's, it's not a bad thing what these religious leaders were doing. They came about it the wrong way. But actually what they're trying to do is they're trying to please God with what they're doing. And, they, and, and the religious leaders come to Jesus in verse 5 and ask about this. And they notice that Jesus' disciples aren't necessarily holding to their tradition, and they want to know why. And, and Jesus' response is kind of harsh. Look at verse 6. And, uh, and Jesus said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And so here's what Jesus is saying. He says, you know what? 
all this stuff that y'all are doing, it's just vain. You're doing all this stuff. You're, wa- you're washing yourself. You're fasting. It's all this stuff that, that you're doing over and above the things that I've asked you to do. And Jesus' words really are a strong rebuke here. Verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Verse 9, and he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Really, Jesus is expressing his anger. And why would Jesus be angry? He's angry because they've taken the traditions, these, these traditions, oh, oh, by the way, they're not unlike the traditions that, that, that we've come up with for some of our religious holidays. I mean, think about the, the, the Easter bunny at Easter. Think about you-know-who at Christmas time. And how some of our traditions around these events, which really are meant to focus on the, the first and the second coming of Jesus, his death and his resurrection and all that, we take it and we completely turn it on its head. And we're, I mean, we're like, like worshiping made up creatures and kind of stuff, right? That's kind of idolatrous, isn't it? We've, we've, we've replaced our, our worship of God with, with other stuff. And the, the religious leaders had, did the same thing. They had, they had made more important their traditions than their worship of God. Their traditions had surpassed God's word and had become authoritative among God's people, so much so that they were leading the people astray. And that's one of the things that God won't tolerate. Not from me, and definitely not from the religious leaders in, in the Bible. And Jesus wasn't going to go for that as well. And so he gives them an example. And we aren't going to read these, these passages. going to sort of speed forward a little bit. Uh, but in verse 10, he starts talking about an example using the fifth commandment, honor your mother and your father. For this is the command, the only command that comes with a promise. In other words, the promise is if you honor your mom and dad, it's going to go well with you. It's a negative to that. Guess what it is? If you don't honor your mom and dad, I mean, I'm not saying something's going to happen, but God is putting his reputation behind this. So young people in the room? Honor mom and dad. That's not just spanking behind this. It's like God and the full weight of his character is behind it. And there's probably some of you adults that may be estranged from your family. I'm not saying, I'm not saying what you got to do to make that right. I'm just saying God has given us a, a command, and he didn't take it away. These are, these are moral commands. They don't go away. But here's what I want you to pay, pay attention to. Verse 13. I think that's the final verdict after he gives us this command. He says, you've made void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed it down. Like you're like handing it down as if it was God's law. They're using their tradition to avoid God's word. It's what Jesus is saying. They are outwardly obedient, but their hearts are far from actually doing what God has said. And there's one word for that. Jesus uses it in verse, uh, verse 6. It's hypocrite. Hypocrite. Jesus will hark on that word throughout the, the Gospels as he's talking about religious leaders. He calls them hypocrites, which is not a lovely word to use. But here's what sticks out to me. It's, it's what he says in verse 13. He says, and many such things you do. In other words, this isn't, I mean, it wasn't just the eating laws, this cleanliness stuff. It was with everything. They had, they had taken God's good commands, and they had gone over and above when they were leading God's people astray by, by coming up with a tradition of the elders. The elders' tradition had actually done what they intended, which is odd, isn't it? It, it put a fence around them. 
It, it, put, it protected the people, but actually had done more. It had fenced them off from God himself. Their tradition had hardened their hearts, and it blinded their eyes to what God really wanted. And the sad thing is that the, the Pharisees, I mean, they couldn't see it. They couldn't see how their eyes had been blinded and their hearts had been cut off from, from what God had wanted from them. They were totally deceived. And so here's my, here's my point for us. I know this is like history. This is like a history lesson. But, but let me bring it to like 21st century context for those of you sitting in here. We would be foolish to read these words and not assume that we can do this same thing, that we can be just as prone to being deceived, to not assume maybe in some way that we have not elevated our own traditions higher than God's word and we've lived by them and passed them on to our children and to people that we know and enforcing it as if it were the pure words coming out from God would be a mistake. Sometimes we're doing this very same thing. Let me give you four questions to think about. Are there ways where your religious traditions have become more important than the words of God? Have you, I mean, have you come up with some stuff in the name of religion that you've put God's name behind and made it more important than what God has actually said? Are there ways that you're using Scripture to obey the commands of God? I can think of one that I, I hear all the time, especially from uh, people that I was growing up with. Don't, don't judge me. You can't judge me, right? Don't we say that? And of course, the Bible does say, judge not lest you be judged. The Bible gives us this sense that, that only Jesus can judge. But, but if we take those verses singularly without putting them in context, it would make you think that as a Christian, I can't see something that's wrong and actually call it out. That's not what the Bible is saying. So sometimes people will use the Bible to keep from obeying the Bible. But here's the one that, that I've been stumped by. Are there demands that you put on yourself or other people that aren't God's commands? That, that's not God's standard. You know what this is called? Legalism. Um, my first two years in Christianity, I went to an Assembly of God church, Pentecostal. I loved the church. Today, I, uh, looking back on my Christian history, I grew more in that church than I've, than I've grown in all the other years of my Christian life, primarily because I was a baby Christian and I was just growing incrementally. Um, I didn't realize it until a couple years later, when I had PCS and gone to a different church, that what I was experiencing there wasn't just the love of God and the love of people. I was experiencing legalism. The women didn't wear pants. They only wore dresses. They didn't wear, the women didn't wear makeup. Nobody in that church, a lot of people, had a TV. And here's the, here's the thing that I remember. No one came up to me and said, Jeff, don't ever date a girl that's not wearing, not wearing a dress or that's wearing, if you wear somebody that has makeup on. I mean, that's just like taboo. Don't do that. No one ever came up to me and said, Jeff, this is the way Christianity runs. You don't buy a TV. You don't look at TV at all. Somehow, though, I figured out these people don't watch TV. And I was living in the BOQ, the Bachelor Officer Course. I actually unplugged my TV from the wall and didn't watch TV for six months. No one ever told me to do that. Here's, here's what that means. This stuff leaks out of us. It leaks out of us. And so this passage is begging us to ask, how might we be doing this individually? But more, more importantly, how might we be doing this culturally, corporately? You know, churches develop cultures, don't, it, don't they? And, and, and here's the thing. Things are caught sometimes more than they're taught. I'm like spending 45 minutes, oh, 50 minutes a day. 52, right? Um, 
But what you all do outside of this time with each other speaks louder than anything that Nick and I or Saji are saying over this pulpit. And unfortunately, folks, sometimes we can be passing down things of cultures, of, of how we act as Christians here at Transit Church that God would not get behind. All right, well, we, don't, we don't dress like that. Oh, we don't wear makeup like you're wearing it. You need to like put some, you know, I mean, don't, don't, we don't eat that stuff. We eat like this. We, we don't do that. We don't go those places. We, we do this. Or, or you know, the, the big one over the last two years in Christian evangelicalism has been politics, where, where uh, if you're a Christian, you're a Republican and you're ultra-conservative right-wing as if we're all homogenous like that. We all have the same thoughts about political parties and social justice and immigration. It could be, for, I mean, that's, that doesn't make sense, right? Even in this room where a great majority of you are military, and this isn't in the text, but I, I mean, just if you think about, I mean, well, what do, what do I, how do I counter that? I think Jesus would tell us if he were in the room, uh, love conquers all. It, it, it's following, actually following the great commandment of not demanding not putting demands, not, not using your own personal legalism and thrusting that on other people, as, as thus saith the Lord. It's instead, it's extending um, the, the right to uh, agree to disagree, and in some cases, just loving each other. Like, love God and love each other. Can we just do that? I'm going to say amen to myself. Because here's what hypocrisy does. It does this to us. It shames us. And, and here's what shame is. Let me, let me compare it to guilt. Guilt is you do something bad. I'm learning this from the books my wife has given me. Guilt is you do something bad, and, and God has programmed us that you do something bad, you should, you should feel guilty. That, that's actually positive. It helps you. All right, I did something bad. All right, I feel bad. Shame is... I don't do anything at all, and I, I somehow get this feeling that, you know what, I am bad. Not that I did something bad, I am bad. And we can feel that in all kind of ways. And a lot of times the way we feel it is other people thrust that junk on us. And it starts when we're little, it does, and you, the rest of your life you're climbing out of it. Why am I so busy right now as a, you know, as a pastor? Is, is because of pride, but mostly because of shame. I'm like climbing out of all these things, these voices in my head, and I'm trying to prove myself to myself and to all those people that come into contact with me. This is who I am. I'm happy. I'm smiling. I'm successful. I'm doing all right. Yeah. And on the inside, there's all these things that are like, yo, you're not. No, you're not. Shut up. You're stupid. Right? All right. Stop, Jeff. I'm being too vulnerable. They can't handle this. All right, so Jesus gets to the end of this text. Um, he finally comes around to asking, answering the question that they ask in verse 5, uh, in verse 14 through the end of the text. I'm going to be quick here. Um, he, he tells them how to get clean. Look at verse 14. And he called the people to, uh, to him again and, and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Yeah, isn't it interesting? You see there's no verse 16 here. I can't, I mean, it's in the manuscript. Manuscripts differ, so the ESV writers, they just took it out. They just like sucked out verse 16 and skipped it and went from verse 15 to verse 17. That was for free. 
All right. So Jesus is saying, you know what? He said, folks, you can wash your hands all you want. You can use soap. You can even use like that greasy dawn that gets all the nastiness out of your hands. But guess what? It's not going to make you clean, at least not the cleanness that God requires of you so that you are in right relationship with him. We got to be mindful of this, that God requires a true purity, a purity before him that's from the inside out, not the outside in. And the religious leaders were trying to do it in the opposite way. They were trying to, 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 to get approval from God. They were zealous to obey him, but they're just going, the wrong, going about it the wrong way. They were trying to make God happy and pleased with them by being clean on the outside, and that's completely opposite of what God was telling them to do by uh, the, the purity laws. And so Mark is insinuating that this doesn't make sense to the crowds. It didn't even make sense to, the, to those that were closest to Jesus. He pulls them into the house, and once they get into the house, they're they like, Jesus, can you explain what in the world you are talking about? Look at verse uh, 17. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and they said to him, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? And so, very simply, Jesus is telling us how our bodies work. When you eat something, it doesn't go to your heart, right? It's like, um, can you imagine a kid, uh, you know, a toddler with his pregnant mom? And, you know, they ask these kind of questions. Mom, how did the baby get in your tummy? Did you eat it? And because, I mean, what are you going to tell them? Like, you really want to tell them how it happened? Don't do that. It's just like, but you don't want to say, I, I ate the baby. Well, how are you going to get it out? I'm just going to poop it out. <laughs> All right. I, I got to stop saying stuff like that. Um, I mean, this is a, 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 like a body lesson 101. You said you eat food, it doesn't go into your, your heart. It goes into your stomach. And at some point, your body's going to use the nutrients and then you're going to expel it. He's, kind, he's being kind of graphic because Jesus can be graphic like that, right? Uh, but, um, but the main thing here is it's not about that. He's saying it's not about the outside. It's about the inside. They're obsessing over the cleanliness of the, the outside of their lives, and they're getting it all together wrong. And some of us are just like these Pharisees. I mean, we just try to make sure that the outside of our lives are, are right, that people looking at us would see us, and there's this unblemished, un, untainted, kind of like... Um, what do you call that Adobe Adobe effect on us? Like like y'all put on your pictures, like the effect stuff on on pictures. I've got liposuction. I've got a tummy tuck. I've got some injections in my butt and my lips, but it makes me look better in public so that you won't see what I really look like. And the Pharisees are 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 they they've bought into this facade, right? And that's exactly what God would not have us to do. Of, of course, here's the opposite thing. It's not wrong for us to think about the outside. Some of us in this room could stand to pay more attention to those things that we are exposed to and the things that we think about morally, right? Some of us look at things that we shouldn't look at. Some of us say things that shouldn't come out of the mouth of Christians. Some of your music it's not becoming, I'm not trying to be legalistic, but I'm just, God does care about the morality of you. He cares about your outside. 
but he cares more about the inside because the inside reflects who you mostly are. He's trying to clean that house out. I got to finish. Here's what this all boils down to. And this is, the, this is the summation of all that I'll talk about today. Your biggest struggle, church people, is your biggest struggle with sin is nothing that's outside of you. That's what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. That's what this passage is telling us. There's nothing that you struggle with sin-wise that's outside of you. i got to be careful how I say this. What that means is there is nobody burdening you. There's nothing that's happened to you that's the primary source of the difficulty of your life. That doesn't negate that you've had difficulties. That doesn't negate that you've perhaps been physically or emotionally abused, and you're you're living through the, the ramifications of that for all of your life. Right? I'm not saying, I'm not taking that away from you. What I'm saying is what Jesus is saying. The biggest struggle that all of us have is not stuff that comes external to us. It's inside of us. It's our hearts. And that's why Jesus says, and I'm almost done. That's why he says in verse 20, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come all kind of evil stuff. All right, he's giving us another another lesson here. He's not talking, when he says heart, he's not talking about the muscle in your chest that, that pumps blood to all your body through your veins and, and, and keeps you alive. He's talking about the central causal course, Paul Tripp would say, of your personhood. He's talking about the seat of your mind, your will, and your emotions because you live from your heart. When you're, when you're doing things, acting out, deciding stuff, you're deciding it from the core of who you are and that's your heart, because here's what Jesus says. He says, from your heart, when you're acting out, doing all kinds of things, be it good or bad, it's coming from your heart. But primarily, here's what's in your heart. And these aren't good words. He says, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, that's the first one, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceitfulness, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. The challenge for us, the challenge for you, find yourself in that list. Guarantee you're there. I could give, I mean, we could just, another sermon for another day. We could spend hours thinking about how we are manifesting things that are in that list. And this wasn't an exhaustive list. Jesus was holding back, but he wants us to recognize ourselves and the things that come out of us in this list. And we've all done these things. Why? Because our hearts are not washed. Last verse, verse 23, he says, all of these evil things come from within and they defile you. What makes you defiled is your dirty heart. And unless we discover that, church, we'll be attempting to live our Christian lives and our faith from the outside in. We'll be trying to clean up our life in ways that look right, but don't measure up into into who God wants us to be from his holy standard. We'll try to find meaning and significance and cleansing from the outside in instead of from the inside out. And here's a devastating thing. It won't work, and we see that in the Pharisees, right? They were trying to do this stuff, and they did it well, and it didn't draw them near to God. It pushed them further away. Can you relate to that at all? I mean, can you see some of that happening in your own life? So what's the remedy? Well, we need Jesus. Because if you're like me, I mean, this is a revelation of my sabbatical, um, looking for achievement, looking for beauty, you're looking for success, or you're being busy to, to promote yourself to God, to make you feel worthy, to make you feel consequential, significant, and, and clean. 
And so we need Jesus. And that's why the Bible gives us good news that, that God sent Jesus. This is the journey that Mark has us on. He introduces, introduces us to the God who became man, who inserted himself into our world, who became as a baby, grew up as a man. And here's the significance of Jesus' life. He lived it from the inside out, not the outside in. He wasn't trying to impress God. He already had God's impression from the very beginning. Jesus is the only man to ever walk the earth that followed God's commands fully without ever getting tripped up. The bad thing is that altercation after altercation with these religious people, where they're saying, no, this is how God would have us to do, and Jesus is telling them the true words, eventually that would lead to him dying on a cross in our place for our sins. So in, in a sort, he who became sin, uh, uh, um, Jesus becomes sin in our place for our sin. He who knew no sin became sin so that we who are sinful can become his righteousness. He takes our uncleanness and all those ways we're striving and he, that, that God doesn't want us to do. He wraps them up in himself. He takes those to the cross so that he can give us his cleanness to make a way for us to be in right relationship with God. That's what, it's, that's what this text is talking about. Jesus comes that our hearts might be made clean and that the sense of helplessness and perhaps even inconsequentialness and insignificance, can I say this, and, and the dirtiness that we feel, whether you're a Christian or not, we know that Jesus provides a solution for that. So what do you need to do? I mean, put your trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that it would not return void. God, that you would uh, make us people who are zealous, even zealous like these Pharisees and, and, and the scribes. Make us um, such that we would be I mean, just overly zealous to obey you and do what you've called us to do. Just don't let us go overboard. Lord, save us from creating our own traditions, the traditions of man, putting those before you and asking you to bless them. Lord, help us to, to see your word as it is, to see your grace extended towards us. You don't require anything of us except that we would uh, admit our sin and come trusting in Jesus, and then we would, Lord, live in obedience to you. Grant that to us, I pray today in Jesus' name. Everyone said amen. Amen.